0: Hey there, folks. Welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. I'm your host today, Valentino Stoll, and we're joined by our co-host, Luke Stutters. Hello. And we have a special guest today, Adam Gordon-Bell. Adam, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about why you're joining
1: us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here for, for a second time. I must have done something right the first time, I guess. Yeah, so I'm Adam. I, I also have a podcast and I work for this company called Earthly that makes an open source build tool. I think I'm here to talk about some of the, the writing I've done in the past about, about programming languages and, and software development. Yeah. Hey folks, this is
2: Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. So, go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com.
0: Yeah, you know, that we discovered kind of two articles that you came out with recently the slow march of progress in, in program language tooling, which is incredible. You know, it's, Hot topic in the Ruby community, Uh, you know, getting our tooling up to speed kind of with some of the other languages that are out there. And uh, another article that you wrote on the other kind of staff software engineer, which uh, is kind of an amusing title, but I think is a great uh, breakdown on what it means to be a staff software engineer and how that kind of differentiates from, a, as you put it, a line software engineer. (laughs) And we could dig more into that. I'd like to focus for now on the the language tooling because it's a super interesting topic. Maybe if you want to just like kind of give a quick like high level, what are we talking about when we are talking about you know language tooling and what yeah. are some of the items that you maybe focus on?
1: Yeah, so the stock Stack Overflow does a survey every year of what tools people use and and whether they like them or not, and one of them is they ask what programming languages you use uh, regularly and then whether you want to continue using it and then they kind of piece this apart into what they call like loved languages and dreaded languages so if you use it you know every day and you don't want to continue using it it's dreaded and if you use it every day and want to continue using it then it, then it's loved and the the list you know kind of changes over time year by year but I guess the big thing that you would notice looking at it is that newer languages tend to be loved and older languages tend to be dreaded. And Ruby at some point was like one of the new loved ones and, and has drifted into the the dreaded category. So I, I started I started thinking about this issue and started asking people some questions about what they liked about languages. And a lot of it was just the tools, like not the syntax of the language, not the way you could do things concisely here, or the way that this language looked versus that language, a lot of it was just tooling. So that made me kind of dig in and, and start looking into this, right? And so, if you if you think about an older language like C which has been in the dreaded list on Stack Overflow for a long time, it, it doesn't have a lot of the built in niceties of of newer languages. There's no like equivalent of Ruby gems, or actually, there's like eight equivalent of Ruby gems, which is like actually worse than than just having one. And like nobody can agree on, on which one to use. There's no, you know, like standard way to put documents, documentation in your code. There's a more limited standard library than than some things some people might be used to. Um, so so the article is about this. It's about how newer languages get to kind of take a fresh crack at what the tooling around a language looks like which is much easier than bolting it on after the fact that that's kind of the summary is that what, hopefully that's what you got out of it as well
0: <laughs> yeah i totally got that out of it and uh, one of the the biggest things that jumped out to me uh to kind of put this in perspective was uh goes auto formatter which you know there there's kind of like the the ruby auto formatter that you can use that kind of goes along with Rubocop, right to auto format code based on styling rules but th- there's nothing central to ruby right i would love to see that <laughs> but if you've never worked in go before uh that is definitely something where y- your code is just magically formatted right to to work and when you get it at that level it's uh, you know you you make a lot less typos (laughs) because you get that instant feedback, right? Where it's like, Oh, it's not formatting, right? Like something must be wrong. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And because like go format was put out along with the language and it has like no knobs that you can turn. It's just like, this is how you format the code. Like there, nobody, it's not a discussion point, right? Like I, I assume the the Ruby formatter, I haven't used it, has a lot of knobs that, that you can tweak and not everybody agrees with all the standards. And it's hard to add something like, like Go format retroactively, right? Because there's all these code bases that don't exist. That, that There's all these code bases that exist and don't conform to it yet. So like nobody, no programming language that existed before Go format will get the like 99.99% code format compliance that, that Go now has with all their open source code. Yeah, yeah, for
0: sure. I'm trying to think of, I'm not really sure what Ruby's targets are as far as their tooling goes, but what's missing? What's something that jumps out at you as far as what could we do better as you know the Ruby community to make some of this tooling better? I mean, package management is definitely one thing. I think resolving... Uh, you know, dependencies with Bundler historically has been problematic, which has gotten a lot better over time. But what are some thorns in your side?
1: Yeah, I mean, I gotta be honest, I don't write a ton of Ruby day to day, so it's. But like, you know, you mentioned like code linting, right? And if you if you look at uh, Go or Rust, like they have the linters built right in, you know, to the to the tool. You use Cargo to compile your code, but it, it can also provide linting options. Not to say there's anything wrong with having a tool that comes off the shelf. Sorry, not to say there's nothing wrong with having a third-party tool that you have to grab and download and configure. But it's so much easier for a new person when, from day one, like the linting is is built right in to the package manager or, or to the compiler, um, and and has same defaults that you can agree with. So I would look at taking a lot of the tools that people use to the side and finding a way to kind of roll them all into into the tooling around the language. It's weird. I find like, I feel like there's not good names for this, right? Like cargo in Rust, you know, like it'll run your unit tests, it'll do linting, it'll suggest things, it'll do code formatting, you know, it has fuzzing capabilities or whatever, right? So what is that? Is it a package manager? I don't know. It's kind of like all of the the little things that you want to do with your language rolled into one. And and a lot of other Languages, these are these are secondary things. Yeah, I'm trying to have, think
3: of all the ones. Go ahead, Luke. I have worked with a very disgruntled Ruby developer who moved to JavaScript and one of the things he cited about why he liked moving to javascript so much was that he could add an automatic code formatter and minter to his git prehooks and the reason why this caused him so much joy is that he used to continually fight with his fellow ruby developers over reformatting code yeah on commits and i will say that it's not just the fact that you can reformat the code it's the fact that there is now an agreed way of formatting the code. So it's not so much that the tool exists, it's that you no longer have to fight your colleagues about it.
1: Yeah, it makes a huge difference on, on like PR reviews and stuff. And uh, like in the article, I, I talked about Python and I included like an XKCD comic where like, you know, you have like pip install and then you have like Py environment and then conda and like all these different tools just to get the right dependencies in place like that's another example like code formatting where when something straightens that out like why do i have to have like a dot rb env file to tell things what version of ruby to use all the time like these are, these are all little paper cuts i guess like i guess the sum of the article is like all these little paper cuts add up to make people kind of not like the onboarding process
0: I'll say the first time I worked with uh Go, the setup was painful. Ah, there <laughs> and, you go. And mostly it was uh the the specific directories that everything has to be oh, in man. as a language, right? And even where you're working from within like has to be kind of like bundled with the language, right? Like Yeah. That it was hard to wrap my head around that, like to get it to work, right? Because I wanted to work where I wanted to work. <laughs> and yeah. Go is just like nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with like the go path, they right. like they have
1: changed that now.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I mean there's an example though, right, of, you know, making the tooling better. Yeah. But I can uh, see
1: like Ruby gems, somebody in one of the comments mentioned like Ruby gems, you know, in terms of the length of the existence of Ruby, it was added fairly late in the game, but that great addition, right, makes it like it, it wouldn't be the same language without it.
0: Right. And I mean the same with Bundler. I remember the days of you know Rails and you inlined all of your gems <laughs> uh, in the configuration files, and there's kind of hope that it worked. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there was no pulling from a central dependency resolver, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what the person was talking about. Sorry, I can't keep everything straight in my head here.
0: It's hard to keep track, right? Like it's kind of funny to think about now. Like if I were to restart ruby i feel like i would have an easier time onboarding i would yeah. like to think right because there have been so many improvements kind of to these things where okay like i can just run ruby right away there's ruby build which is a great tool to just install ruby right away no matter what platform you're on and it's great it works every single time and <laughs> i i struggled so many times to install ruby like when ruby version managers like started becoming a thing like that was a a new challenge, right? I feel like yeah. I feel like every language goes through these pains, right? Like, you'd think that there would be a defined path. Okay, like, if you want to make a new language, like, these are things that you got to, like, make sure you have an order, right? Instead, it's kind of like, all right, here's this language,
1: like, we'll figure it out as we go, I guess, right? <laughs> well, I think, like, a lot of it is things get added on later. Like, there's innovations, right? Like, yeah, like, a code formatter wasn't a thing that people worried about when when Ruby came out and like when c++ was you know in its early days there was no such thing as like a you know a third-party package manager that you needed to have integrated and it's just it's hard to add these things after the fact because everybody gets so used to how things work you know you work in this environment and you just understand like okay this is how you do things so like the standard's always moving i guess is what i'm saying but but i'm interested to hear like what do you think is, is the tooling holes that or the, the areas that should be polished in Ruby? That's a good
0: question. I mean, getting Ruby on Windows is still a bit of a challenge. I know it's kind oh, of just yeah. been like, it's, a, it's still, it's been a constant battle, <laughs> I feel like, over yeah. the years. And it's definitely a barrier to entry for people just starting out, right? Like, maybe they just want to get a Chromebook and try and run Ruby. Or Chrome is a bad example, but there's Windows versions of a Chromebook you know, just something, a cheap machine that you just want to try starting on, and it's hard to do that. Which I'm hopeful that kind of this WebAssembly stuff can fix a lot of that mm-hmm. problems starting out, right? Where you could just visit this web page, and I think that's how tryruby.org works now. Where oh, you can wow. you just go to the browser and try to play with Ruby just in the browser, which is pretty cool. But, you know, it's limited to dependencies. You, you can't, like, just install gems, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I feel like that
3: multi-platform issue is will continue. <laughs> they should just put the whole of active support into Ruby Core. I feel
1: like <laughs> it, it's like whenever somebody's learn, like if you get a chance to try to teach somebody, you should write down all the things they struggle with because it's you become blind to them, right? Yeah. Like you you miss them. I know that
0: the documentation is a common one that comes up, right? Like because there are so many different documentation websites for Ruby that it's hard to follow like which one is the official one and then there's the new like Ruby API site which is like kind of like a, a fresher user interface for the documentation that's pretty nice and I've heard that maybe that is going to be the official you know don't take my word for it but it's that is still unusually a hard part of the language, right, is like you go and you Google search and there may be three different sites <laughs> listed on the first page of the Google results, right, and you don't know which one to pick and you just hope that, uh, you know, the first one works and a lot of the times your first result will be an older version of the language that is that first pick, right? So I feel like discoverability for documentation is definitely a hard problem to solve,
1: specifically for Ruby it seems at this time. Yeah, that's a hard one too, but but so key, right? Because you want people to be able to solve their own problems. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I think right. It's one central. of the
3: things one of the things you wrote, wrote about Adam in your article was the idea that if you have a standard documentation system, you can link that into an IDE. So when you kind of mouse over, then you can kind of just instantly see what all the parameters are to that method and what it does and yeah i hadn't hadn't really thought about it before but that is an incredibly powerful tool when you're just starting to work on a code base
1: yeah like for discoverability for sure and then yeah like having a central website is useful too where if you're like you know every package we're going to generate docs for it and throw it on this one website in a familiar format that's also super helpful
0: I did see recently. I feel like it was Koichi that uh, gave a, a link to displaying something like this uh, in an editor, where you could just hover over and it would show you the, you know, Ruby R docs for whatever method or class that you're in. I feel like that's hopefully coming soon. <laughs> There's a I, I don't use VS Code enough. There's a lot of plugins out there that I think can give that.
3: Oh, I've got another thing to say about Ruby documentation, too. All right, you, you got me started now. Here we go. So I'm using some, like, gem, okay? And I'm in the R doc. I'm like, okay, what's going on, right? Let's have a look. Click on the R doc. And on the left-hand side of the page is an enormous list of classes, which I will never touch which no one will ever touch. They're all just kind of total implementation. No one's ever going to touch that stuff. But the whole left-hand side of the screen is just full of nonsense, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah? And you're looking at this kind of massive list of classes thinking, oh, my word, I don't know what's going on here. Where do I start? You know, where's the entry point? Which of these am I actually going to use? So some way to kind of tag those up and say, like, you're never going to do this. You know, hide all of these. Put all of these right at the bottom of the list. You know, you only want these four to use this library that would save me a lot of time yeah so uh, some kind of meta tagging in documentation now I, I i'm not sure if i've seen it in another language so this isn't i, I don't you know if that even really exists the idea you know where you say "Yeah, this is a kind of all kind of implementation these are the ones you want Uh, when you're actually using this thing. I don't know if that exists in Go or anything else.
1: But this is where innovation happens, right? Like, if the Ruby community thinks hard about that and does a really good job of it, then, you know, people will be leaving Ruby and ending up somewhere else and being like, why isn't there a way to highlight, you know, what the main things in the docs are, right? And then it will spread.
3: I know I know, you're supposed to look at the tests, all right? I know I'm supposed to look at the tests, but believe me, that doesn't always help. (laughs) Yeah, I mean...
0: There's been so much work with the parser lately and the Ruby grammar. I feel like being able to pipe that into you know, some new tool should be easier this day and age where it could just automatically pull from source locations kind of thing. I don't know. I feel like maybe there could be something there.
1: Another big thing that came about that wasn't covered in the article, for those of us who use VS Code like me, is the, is the LSPs, like the Language Server Protocol. Is that what it stands for, I think? I think so. I didn't really understand what
3: that was. The LSP. What is the LSP?
1: So Microsoft came up with this idea for, I guess, solving the IDE problem. If you think of it, like the, the the text editor slash language problem is, if you come up with a new programming language, you need to add support for it to like all these various editors that people use. So like, if you use a, a heavy IDE with like refactoring support. That support needs to be built into that whatever, IntelliJ or Visual Studio or whatever. Um, so it's kind of like an N times M problem, right? Like every every Visual Studio needs to know how to, to do all these things for each language. So it, to, to kind of cut this, this knot in half, they came up with this language server protocol, which is basically a, a protocol where your compiler or something can tell the editor about the code, right? Tell it like uh, where the definition of this is, and things like that. Um, so that way, if if you build a new editor, you just have to support the language server protocol. And if you build a new programming language, you just need to support the language server protocol, like on the emitting side. And then every language and every editor can work together.
0: I feel like I saw something recently where somebody was doing like inline Ruby evaluations. So you could see, you could just open up any Ruby file and you could see line by line what the code evaluated to kind of in a sidebar. And I thought that that was pretty neat because that instant feedback you can get anytime, like that's kind of the power of like the Ruby console, right? IRB, open up and just see everything that you'd ever want to know about it. But it'd be nice to just like open a file and get that, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think LSP goes that far. But yeah, Shopify has built like a Ruby LSP that I assume there's probably a VS Code plugin you can use with it to get some nice like go to definition type features. But because Ruby came after the LSP concept, right? It's not like built into the compiler. Where in, in some newer language, they might just like you might just ship with LSP. Like I'm sure Shopify probably had to do a lot to like back out all the like parsing of Ruby and and send this through. <laughs> it's like some things are just harder to add after, right? It's like when you build a yeah. house, it's like it's easy to put in that gas line when there's no walls but then once there's walls things become a lot more complex i think too of you know standards that get
0: put in place that aren't official right like yeah for vim users out there like tim popes like vim rails is like the de facto standard for like finding the definition of something within a rails framework and so you can like open up a model in a controller context that's related to it uh, there's just a whole bunch of extra things and so like for people that have been around rails a while you know you just and that you, our vim users which is quite a few people right <laughs> uh, you get all these standards in place and then for new things to come about it's like hard to kind of change your behaviors you know the the longer you're around the harder it is to change right <laughs> and i feel like that's kind of the problem that ruby is into now right where we have all these people that have been around the, with the language for so long that are working on this tooling that have, you know, adjusted kind of to those Mm. (laughs) ways of doing things that maybe aren't people new to the language that are using, right? So... You get a lot of people using VS Code as an example, where maybe some of the older people in the Ruby community aren't using VS Code or aren't using some of these other tools that they would be missing out otherwise. Uh, first, how do you discover about them other than scouring Twitter or something like that and hoping that you pick it up someday, right? Or from a coworker. And second, like, how do you readjust your whole way of working with the language, right? Like, yeah. it's definitely that's a hard problem to solve. Totally. I don't have, I don't
3: have any answers. <laughs> I got a firm one for you. At what point does a language become unfixable? Because that's the implication here, right? At what point is it too far gone that you just gotta kinda throw it all away and start again, just like they did with Python (laughs) two.
1: Well the interesting thing to me is that like all of this stuff is actually not a technical problem. It's all actually a community problem, right? There there's no reason why why it will be hard for for wide adoption of the Ruby code formatter to happen, but it could happen. Like the, the limitation is everybody agreeing on a standard way to format the Ruby code. Like the formatter exists, right? Like it's just nobody, it's, it's less common in usage, right? Or in C++, where they have at least eight package managers, like they could all agree on one. The issue isn't they don't know how to build a package manager. They keep building them. It's it's that they haven't come together to say this is the one. It's a community problem. And sadly, these are the hardest things to to address, right? Because you can't just crank out some technical solution. You need to get everybody to agree. It's kind of funny, too,
0: because people use languages in so many different contexts, right? Like, everybody's not just a web developer, right? Like, there are people using Ruby for mobile development, right? Like, or like embedded systems, like so many different kinds of applications and contexts. And how do you like make core concepts like the same for all those different contexts where you even have completely different environments sometimes, right? Like different workflows. Like I can, I totally understand the Ruby core's hesitance, right? On a lot of features, right because so many features just don't make sense in so many contexts right and to focus attention or change things too dramatically you can collapse the entire ecosystem w- with the the wrong decision right
1: yeah and if you look at it's if you look at the you know in my article i mentioned go and and rust a lot cuz they've put a lot of work into a lot of tooling But they also have a lot of resources comparatively for programming languages. Like Go is coming out of Google. Rust had, you know, Mozilla support for some time. Like this is a lot of work doing all this stuff. Like that's the truth of it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean,
0: I'm trying. That honestly, thank goodness for the amount of money that Shopify is pouring into Ruby you know especially recently i i hate to you know with their huge layoffs recently i hate to talk too much in positive light uh they are doing some great things right but we got we need more <laughs> we need more people you know funding and and uh some propping the languages up right i don't know if go would be as popular as it was if it didn't have something somebody like google say sponsoring it or if it was just like some third-party organization, nonprofit, right? If it would also have the same effect, which maybe it is now, but, you know, it's kind of funny to me (laughs) to see what becomes popular of of languages based on who's funding it, right? Because there are so many smaller languages that a lot of people use too, right? Like Lua as an example, or what was that one with the Z? (laughs) Zig? Zig, Right, a kind of the Rust alternative, if you will, as yeah. far as applications. Right, so it'll be interesting to see what else comes out. Is kind of what I'm getting at. Right, like <laughs> there's there's a lot of big companies out there. Right, like that all want to you know take advantage of the next thing. I'm kind of interested to see what will come out of it, or if because once you let's say that a programming language has made all the tooling the most incredible thing to use. Right, people get tired of it.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, so right? previously. So previously, I wrote this article called like Brown versus Green Programming Languages. And it, it was about this topic where I said, like, when you are working on like, uh, so it was about the same thing, the Stack Overflow Developer Survey, and about maybe a possible different answer, which is that people like to use new programming languages because they don't want to work on their old code bases because they're a mess. Like, it might be great fun to work on a new Rails project, but if you have one that's super old and has not been given the most care, like you might, you might think differently, right? And how much does that rub up rub off on the language, right? If you are doing a new project, if you are working in Zig, you are probably doing something new because it's a fairly new language, right? So you might not have all this, you know, old code that you have to worry with. What is might, Zig? What's Zig? What is Zig? Oh, it's it's a cool uh, new programming language. It's like uh, close to C, I guess. It's like a a modern take on C development with like, you know, raw memory management.
2: Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com/coaching. I will give you a 1 hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again that's topendevs.com/ Coaching.
0: I know when they were when they're trying to merge the n- new uh, what was it the word is escaping me but the uh, new compiler or not compiler but parser parser maybe for for Ruby. Oh, man, why I mean, jet? The, the new oh. JIT so yeah, they're, yeah, they're trying yeah. right there. They s- were trying to figure out whether they should use Rust or and they were considering Zig, right, like for their pra- practicality with kind of extending C. For more like higher level abstractions, right? Because that's one of the biggest problems with C is you don't really have that like class structure that you can get with some of the other languages and make it a little more modular. And so I, I don't I don't think uh, Zig had the maturity that it needed at that stage, but I know it was in kind of close consideration. Do you want to talk
1: about the staff software engineer article?
0: I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm curious. What a staff software engineer is <laughs> I know you, 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 the article does a great job of kind of summing it up, but I kind of I, I love to make fun of titles. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like everybody is just that the word engineer kind of in in a t- software title. I get a lot of slack. My wife is an engineer, <laughs> a chemical engineer, so uh anytime that I say engineer in my title, I didn't go to engineering school, right? Like I don't know engineering principles, like <laughs> I know software principles. Uh <laughs> so I- I'm curious, what what do you as a staff software engineer uh or staff software developer, uh, if you will.
1: Well, so this is the aspect of the article I got the most feedback on. It wasn't positive feedback, but (laughs) (laughs) like, so in, in big tech, there is a a role above senior that's called staff. And so, yeah, it's just like a, a a step on a higher, you know, hiring ladder or, or whatever. Right. But, um, so I wrote about what I called the other type of staff engineer, which was when, when I was in school uh, for software engineering under under the computer science school but don't tell the engineers that, about that one but um, I took I had to take a class in the business <laughs> school at university and it was like this management class and they, they talked about like staff versus line employees which was like a traditional way to think about people's roles within companies. so basically it's a different meaning of staff. If you work at a car factory, you might work on the line assembling the car. Or you might be staff. You might work in the office somewhere. You might do HR or accounting. And it's true for every business. You either are in a supportive role, or you're actually like building or selling the the product or service that the company makes. So I was trying to say in this article that whether you're line or staff in this sense like affects your job a lot. Like if you you know you could work on billing software at a utility company as an employee of the utility company, or you could be a consultant who comes in as part of a consulting team to work on the software for a billing company. And these two jobs, although you're doing the same software, will be vastly different, right? If you're an employee of the utility company, you probably mainly work with on a small development team. You mainly interact with non-developers. You probably have like a really wide scope of what you do. There's like a lot of software and you mainly try to keep it running. Um on the other hand, like if you work at a software company, you know, there's probably a lot of software developers. You probably specialize a lot. There's probably a lot of competition for roles. It probably pays better than at the utility company. But I guess what I was trying to say in the article is that there's a lot of differences between these two jobs. And people act like there only is working for like Fang or Shopify or whatever. But there there's all these other jobs that that are that are under discussed. And I know what Luke was telling me. Uh, that he has a preference I think.
3: Yeah I've done both and I never before I read this article I never kind of really realized that was the difference so I started off doing software in a software company kind of clawing your way to the top doing that and I changed over working for a manufacturing company also doing a software role but they were a manufacturing company. The factory was full of giant machines that made sheet metal and injection molded and they needed software but they didn't really sell software. It was a kind of necessary evil. It was all kind of aggressively outsourced as much as it could. But the opportunities in the manufacturing company were much, much broader than they ever were in the software company.
1: Yeah. I think that's common. Like you'll have a wider scope. Like my friend who works for a utility company, like there are very few software developers there, but he, You know, his boss reports to like the COO of the utility company. So if if he was hungry to climb the corporate ladder, you know, he gets a lot more exposure to how a business works and uh, and things like that. He also has a pension, which uh, I'm kind of jealous of and is uncommon in the software world. So there are differences for sure. And let's work standards. No. A utility company. <laughs> U- utility companies have like the highest rate of like unionization and, and pensions of um you know. Yeah, let's not talk fields. about Enron though, right? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't work for Enron. <laughs> but yeah, I think their pension went bust, didn't it? Down with the whole ship. Yeah, that's a joke for all the moms and
3: dads out there. <laughs> the um yeah, I was gonna say the other thing is standards, right? If you're working for a software company doing software the standards are going to be much higher if you're going to sweat the details. But if you're working for, like, a utility company doing software, those standards are going to be right away down the bottom. And anything you do is going to be seen as a miracle.
1: (laughs) It's true. And, like, if you, I mean, you also have more ability to sneak by, like, a a weird pet project, I guess, if you're not at a tech company. Because nobody's going to question it if you're like, oh, of course, this new thing has to be built in Zig. Like at, at the tech company, they're going to be like, what, why? But at the utility company, they'll be like, oh, that, he knows what he's talking about.
3: Oh, yeah, Zig. Yeah, sure. We know Zig. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Carry on.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the downside, of course, is that you are no longer in a company with a whole bunch of software engineers. So the opportunity for personal improvement and actually learning stuff is much, much lower. So even though the overall professional opportunities are gonna be much bigger, it's not a great place to learn more about software.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. The the couple of people that I've talked to that have done this did what I called retiring to staff. So it's kind of like, you know, they worked at a tech company where it was high pressure and they, they got really good at it, but they got a bit burnt out on it. And from there, you know, they they transitioned to a more slower paced, more yeah, I guess just slower paced job. At a larger non tech company, where they might not move their skills forward as much, but they're consciously making that decision. I don't think it's a good place to start your career like that that's my thinking. I think everybody should start their career
0: in uh consulting yeah <laughs> i th- I think you just work on so many different things and are at the whim of the customer that I think it just shapes your mind right for specifically for software. I feel like it's easy, like kind of in a product sense to get. Trapped by the product, right? Like, if you're trying, if your goal is to just work, like, okay, maybe it doesn't matter. <laughs> but if your goal is to become like good software engineer, like, and you want to, you know, discover a lot of new concepts, it's going to be harder to dive into a product first. I don't know. In my my, my experience, you know, because I I kind of did that. <laughs> I jumped into trying to to make my own product, and maybe that was also a, a problem on my end, (laughs) but I feel like I joined a consultancy and just was like thrown at the wall, basically at so many different problems. And, you know, over time, a lot of the core components kind of came together and having the experience of seeing a large array of, you know, ways to do things, I feel like it made, made me better programmer. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know if that's true of everybody, you know, but I feel like it's, it's hard to start in a, a, like a very like I don't want to say controlled environment, but like when the design decisions have already been made, it's hard to learn from that, right? Like because you're just learning those design decisions, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, no, I totally so, agree. It's like you're saying, yeah, because in the in the conception of this article, like that is a very clear like line position, right? You're getting thrown like you're selling your time, right? And right. you you get to learn from other Consultants, I hope. I hope it wasn't just you th- on a thing alone. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it was. <laughs> it was definitely with other yeah. people. <laughs> I was. I was a pairing quite a lot. Uh, thankfully,
1: yeah, it's a good <laughs> way to to level up your skills, right? But it has the downsides of these line positions. Like it's high pressure, right? And the standards can be hard. I mean, maybe that wasn't your experience, yeah. But
0: it was. It's definitely
1: overwhelming
0: to start, no matter what, right? So maybe it's maybe it's easier like a more calm experience starting in a more controlled environment, right? So I guess it would depend on your how you learn. If you're, you know, if you need things to be, you know, more delicate to start and then ramp yourself up, maybe it, it would be better to be in a more controlled environment, right? But yeah, I mean, consulting is definitely chaotic, right? Like <laughs> you're at the whims of the customer and, you know, sometimes, you know, the right consultancy can help, you know, buffer between the client enough But it's never going to be perfect. And you're always going to be, you know, there's going to be something where the the customer is just like doing something crazy and asking a lot of you, right? And you're like, I I don't know if I could do this, right? Like, I'm learning.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) It's like somebody had described, everybody I know who's done consulting only did it for a certain amount of time. And it, it makes me think of somebody who was talking about working at Amazon as a web developer who said that, that they would burn through developers like they were tea candles.
3: (laughs) I can't believe that. (laughs) Jeff Bezos always strikes me as a very nice man.
1: (laughs) Very relaxed.
3: Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny though, this, this line staff
0: analogy, I think it makes a lot of sense. Like even outside of software, my wife, she works at a pharmaceutical plant and they have tons of consultants come in. Right. And do various things and they are their line right like they have you know they won't do work unless you ask them to do something right and so they have very specific things you line up their work and they get it done right and as people are growing as part of the staff like supporting basically for when as they call it the real work (laughs) needs to get done (laughs) you know i I definitely makes a lot of sense to me but i i still have this thing with titles (laughs) the 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 whole i know i get the origins of the the military nature right and there there has to be you know phrases for things that everybody can come together and agree on. I feel like titles though they're they're still not great <laughs> right like you you stamp a label on somebody and then there that doesn't travel to different companies right like let's say just senior software engineer right like that's different at so many different- companies right like i feel like i feel like they're not granular enough and they're not standardized right so like just go just saying you know staff software engineer maybe that paints a certain picture maybe as far as like what some of their abilities are but i don't know it's also funny just staff software like is everybody part of the staff right like (laughs) i don't
1: know uh, (laughs) the esoteric naming definitely throws me what we need is like maybe a Pokemon based system or like
0: Yeah, something that's completely, you know, different from our reality, right? Where we could be like, all right, well it's definitely, you know, it's defined, clearly defined, right? It has this hierarchy, like
3: <laughs> we could just use the GitHub system that would be great. And say you're like a fifteen thousand star
1: general. <laughs> just how many stars you've accumulated?
3: Yeah. <laughs> I like it. So Adam, you're in quite an extreme Position, you're not only a a line software engineer, right? I don't know. In that, you, you, you your company is a software company.
1: Yeah, that's right. So my my company is a software company. So I work for Earthly, and we we make an open source build tool. And actually, something cool I thought I'd mention here is we we've just gone open source. Well, I mean it was in April, but relatively recently. We were we were using a open core. Uh, model, I guess, for our build tool, but we switched now to uh, MPL too. So we're open source. Uh, the code was always on GitHub, but now all the kind of legal asterisks are gone.
3: But well, I was going to say was not only I have so many only questions. Is it a software company, but you are selling software to other software developers, which has always struck me as a bit extreme because it's not like you're kind of making a product for you know, just e-commerce or, you know, a particular industry, you're selling it to other developers, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. It is (laughs) exciting. Is that the complete nightmare that I dream it is? I think it's great because, like, as software developers, we have a very good understanding of what our customers would like. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure it has uh, upsides and downsides. But, uh, yeah, we definitely have a good grasp on the needs of our customers since we, you know, are similar to them. I don't know. I don't find it a nightmare. What, what's your concern about it? I just imagine it'd be like cooking for Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Are you saying software developers are hard to deal with? You're like, I could have any customer I wanted and I chose you guys? Well,
3: I've, I've done a lot of software products where people kind of phone me up and say, hey, you know, why doesn't it work like this? Why doesn't it work like that. Uh, but I've never done a product where those same people can look at my code and say, Hey, why have you done this? Hey, why have you done that? That's a, that's another level, right? Yeah. No, th- that is
1: true. So
3: I, don't, so I don't know. On that note, why did you decide to go open source?
1: Yeah, so so Earthly is like it's a combination of like a make file and a Docker file, if you want to, to think about it. Like it's it's an easy way to build software. And it's it's open source and then we're commercializing it by by building like a, a CI that people can can use. So originally, we used this license, BSL license, that was originally created by MariaDB. And it basically says, like, this software is completely open source, um, except unless you use it to compete with us commercially. And MariaDB came up with this because of Amazon. Uh, Mr. Jeff Bezos, we were talking about earlier, right? They wanted to offer a hosted version, I guess, of MariaDB, and they didn't want have to compete with AWS. So they came up with a special license and then lots of other companies followed it. And so, you know, that was what we did as well. We were open source, you know, just with a asterisk. But, you know, that's very confusing for people, I think. You know, they haven't heard of this license. They don't understand, like, you're only trying to preclude somebody directly competing with you. people understand open source much better than like open source with an asterisk. And when you want to convince a developer to use your open source software, you don't want them to have to go talk to legal and try to figure out like what the ramifications of this might mean. Um, so we just change it for simplicity. <laughs> go
0: for it. I have so many questions. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of a dream for a company to like be able to take what yeah. they've worked on and get other people to contribute it to it, right? Is Is that what you've experienced? Like, have when you took this open, were people already kind of contributing
1: to it? Uh, Like, do you see a huge uptick Uh, after you did make it officially more public? Source available. So the source it was always on GitHub. We were always working out in the open, and people did contribute somewhat. Although most of the development is internal, but what did happen is like when we would get some publicity somewhere, people would be like, "Well." You know, it'd be nice if it was open source. Like we kind of got more like the occasional snide remark about like, what's this weird license um, you're using? So we removed that aspect of it, like people, but like the the people, I don't think the people who are excited to contribute, you know what? It's hard to say, right? Like if people were being scared off because of the license, we we would never know. We would never hear from them. Like, so it is hard to say, but yeah, we get some contributions, (laughs) uh, maybe a little bit more than before but we've always been working out in the open and i should say that uh like my job is developer relations and so i contribute to the product like in a minor way right like i'm not the primary developer if i, if I put in a big pr it gets looked at closely like <laughs> <laughs> i will say that having Oh, that's funny. Go
3: ahead. Uh, so, I mean, I, I will say that having tried to get open source go ahead, into very large corporations a couple of times, both in America and Japan, licensing is an enormous barrier to entry. And the more corporate it is and the more money they have, the more they're going to worry about the legal status of the license. I had the most incredible showdown about using GPL based. Um, yeah. software and a product because part of the company was just utterly convinced that this meant that they had to release all of their source code for different products that you know weren't, weren't actually in that product, which was obviously not true. But there's a, a very large amount of nervousness when it comes to licenses, especially when dealing with bigger companies and bigger accounts. So I think it's definitely the right way to go.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm surprised it's not like a can I use, right, for for a repo on GitHub, right, where you could just mm. click a button and say, okay, this is what I'm doing with it. You know, kind of like, uh, you know, HTMLs can I use for elements and selectors and stuff? Because, I mean, I don't even think about it often. I'll just, like, use it and be like, oh, this is great. And then after the fact, right, look at the license and be like, oh, crap, right? Like, uh, most times, right? <laughs> I've definitely d- started looking at it more now that our company has grown, <laughs> right? But licensing is just so yeah. funny, like... If it's on GitHub, people just think you can use it, right? Like, and so, you know, people do, and, you know, it it doesn't really become a problem, right? Until like something happens with the company that you're using it with, right? Like, let's say you wrote this incredible new application and you've gone and used all these things, and then, you know, you went to sell whatever you've made, right? Uh, and they'd be like, oh, well, you, sorry, you can't sell it. right like and people scramble to to swap it out with something else right like that's typically what happens and so it's it's funny that you mentioned that like you know people would complain about license yeah. cuz i feel like for the most part people don't really look at it <laughs> right like so i'm i'm kind of curious have you gotten any new feedback since you've like you know changed that license or you know what what advantages are you hoping like long term to get out of yeah, this I other mean, than just maybe
1: like corporate adoption? I mean adoptability. we were always source available, right? So it wasn't a huge change. Like the code was already out, always out there. And right. that's important because like I mean we've been talking about developer tools here today, but like people don't want a proprietary developer tool like if if you especially like we're making something to to do your builds and to to do your CI and like you don't want for us to disappear and then you can't build your software anymore. Like that sounds horrible, right? So by us having it open source all out there like on Homebrew or on your various package managers and you can audit the code if you want. Like I feel like that's the big advantage. You know, just from a developer safety point if I'm thinking about it. I'm like, "Well, what I don't know what this thing is." But yeah, the legal question, yeah, I mean, I think it, it right. comes up. And that and then like it depends on the size of the organization, right? Like We've definitely talked to companies who they just want to use our open source tool, but first they have to set up a meeting with us and there's like eight people on their side. And I assume that those companies think very carefully about the licensing if they're having meetings with every tool they pull in. I mean, I wonder how they get anything done, but but these places do exist. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if like,
0: has there been anything else that you've had to kind of focus on to help support? now that it is truly uh, an open system to use? I know it's been, you know, the source has been available. But have you had to add, like, extra documentation or anything like that that you Uh, focused on? Like, what was your next step after just, like, changing the the license license file? file?
1: We did participate in Hacktoberfest a couple times. And to do that, we spent some time, like, making sure we had a contributor's guide. And then, you know, we also tried to collect, like, easy issues, you know, like, it's actually hard to do. Where it's like, if you see a small problem, like don't just fix it. Like put in an issue and and label it as like a good first issue. Like if it's you know it's just some minor little thing. A lot of times people need that to get their feet wet, right? They need something that they can you know go through the whole process, but just make a, a small change. Like this flag isn't the help for this flag at the command line is wrong or something, right? Just those things become like kind of on ramps where where people can understand how to contribute uh, to the project but but honestly like most of the development is is still internal like the whole process is external you can see what we're working on but like it's mainly done by us
0: yeah I remember seeing that methodology used on was it the the rails mini profiler gem which basically like if you're familiar with the rack mini profiler it's like this tiny little tab at the top of yeah. your rails pages that shows you like how fast things loaded uh, in various parts of the stack and uh, this guy made this new, like, version that was Rails mini-profile, but it gives you, like, this slicker, like, UI to kind of see requests and what's happening in the stack uh, and the timing of it. And I went to look at his repository, and it was great. Like, he would just put, like, he was just, like, loaded up the issues on the repository of everything that he wanted to get done, everything that he wished had, right? Like, just sit basically did like a mind dump like in the issues and then just like slowly started like chipping away and tagging stuff. But like yeah. j- just seeing the, all the issues there, it like made me want to jump in, right? Like I'm like, oh, like this looks like interesting. Like that seems like something I would want to add, right? Like just seeing where the trajectory yeah, would go point. Uh, can kind ancient. of like bring in so more we, contributors. That we way? get a lot it's
1: of interaction cool. in terms of, yeah, issues and proposals. So we we do proposals up as Tickets in like GitHub, we have like a roadmap on there with has like some swim lanes where we can put, you know, this is experimental. Like we actually have this, but it's not guaranteed. Like we might remove it at some future point. You know, some things are just planning. Um, we put together these proposals and people discuss it on the the GitHub issue. And a lot of times, people will suggest something, and then we're like, "This is a good idea. Let's turn this into a proposal." Right? Like this is the change you might be suggesting. So yeah, we get a lot. Of contributions that way. And and in a lot of ways, it's a lot more valuable than, yeah, like somebody just fixing a a minor bug, right? These are people who use the product who are trying to help shape what it would become. So have you noticed, have you
0: noticed anybody like kind of taking your software and running with it? (laughs) Like, was, was anybody higher up like, you know, that was worried about, you know, the change in the licensing, seeing something out there that are like, oh, no, they've taken it and they're making their own thing?
1: Oh, yeah, like, we we definitely see people using Earthly to build their software. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry, I don't have a good story of, like, this guy was like, finally, now I will use it. And, yeah, Let's just pretend he's out there. His name is Jeff. And uh, Legal told him no, but once we change things, then he... He right finally got it. Yeah.
0: I know, it's just yeah. funny, like, people think that, you know, that's kind of like the fear. Like, why why have these licenses at all, right? Like, I mean, the biggest fear is some big company is going to come and just, like, take it all and just, like, make it their own thing and sell it as a product and then kind of, you know, make you, since you're not in their ecosystem, Amazon yeah. is a great yeah. case of this, right? Like, like SQS is an example, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's so many open source available messaging services, right? Like, uh, but if you're already in the Amazon ecosystem, like, why not just, hook into it, right? And if you're were somebody like RabbitMQ or some I don't know if they <laughs> stole it this technology off of anybody necessarily, right? But you know, that's the big concern, right? Is like yeah. some company will just take it and like make you
1: completely obliterate you. Yeah, Elasticsearch is a great example. So it's like yeah. what Amazon's they changed its name from Elasticsearch, I think, but they like put it in brackets. But anyways, yeah, Elasticsearch, <laughs> uh, you know, you can what do you know what the AWS one is called? I don't know. But Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> Elasticsearch, the company was not happy that like everybody's using Amazon's version of it because everybody's on AWS. Legitimately, I think they have right to be upset about this. So yeah, we're taking that risk. If you're listening, Jeff Bezos, please don't crush
0: us. <laughs> I mean, par- part of me though is like you know, if people are have bought into Earthly, right? Like if you're using an Earthly platform, why would you jump to somebody like Amazon, right? Like, I feel like people just, I don't know that this happens as frequently as maybe people think it does, right? Like I'm personally, that fear of not wanting to open something up just from getting it stolen is so common. And I don't know that there's a solution other than locking the license, right? But I feel like it's also like way oversold, Right, like I don't know that it is
1: happening as frequently
0: as people say it is, right, like,
1: but maybe it is, <laughs> yeah, i mean, also, so maria d b was the b s l license and and they're a database, and the amazon will amazon does sell databases, right, like they're directly i think in the in the line of fire you know c i is they do have uh they do have build products, but it's it's less directly in their wheelhouse i mean maybe it's more in azure's wheelhouse maybe that's who we should be worried about but the bet we're making is that we're making something really cool really valuable and people want the earthly brand and and you know that we have advantages that we can add on yeah so hopefully that works yeah, out i'm looking
0: here amazon elastic search service
1: <laughs> <laughs> see they changed the name <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man that is too funny <laughs> It's a dangerous game. Oh, no, they've named it to uh, Open Search Service.
1: Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there was a lawsuit or something.
0: <laughs> I mean, good for them. <laughs> so we've talked about a lot here, Adam. Is there anything else
2: you wanted to touch on before we uh, move to picks? No, I don't think so. This has been fun. All right, great. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium.
3: Luke, you want to start us off? Yeah, I mean, to go back to my earlier point about languages that are too far gone to save, the obvious one I'm thinking of is, of course, C++ (laughs) and Google this week have announced their uh, would be c++ killer called carbon lang i'm not sure if you've seen it but it's it's uh, caused a lot of um discussion shall we say so go and everyone should go and learn that and stop doing c++ anymore my next two picks are from of course adam's own podcast called co-recursive now the first one is for older people and it's an interview with a guy called Jeff Schrager, who was involved in the first Eliza protocol. This was the kind of early chatbot. Now, I actually had an Eliza in in basic, which I got from a shareware disc, which I ordered through the mail. So this episode has a certain amount of magic for me. It's not going to appeal to younger generation <laughs> at all, but I loved every second of it. It was absolute gold. And uh, if you want something more up-to-date, they've also got one of my personal heroes on there. And by day, I mean you, Adam, which is the interview with Casey Muratori, who is absolute out of mine. mind. Uh, everything he does is solid gold. And there's there's a great episode with him on there as well.
1: Did you see Casey's terminal, like Windows terminal
3: stuff? I, I, my favorite video of Casey Muratori is this how to, how to use Git video on YouTube. That is fantastic. <laughs>
1: Oh that's funny. <laughs> he's he's a harsh he he can be harsh. <laughs> he's very very entertaining.
0: Yeah. Uh I have a couple picks here. The the first one I discovered we've had him on the show before Ivo Anjo, but he made this way to visualize the tracing of Ruby Global's VM, so the GVL basically. So if you're not familiar, Ruby keeps like kind of like a lock on the interpreter so that you can only We're all very aware. Oh, yeah, Yeah. we're all aware, right? (laughs) I don't have to explain too much. Uh, (laughs) But he has this great visualization so you can kind of follow along the trace of that and see what's locking what. Uh, It's very cool. I would definitely check it out. There are talks of kind of working it into Ruby itself, so we'll see if that makes it. Uh, Another pick I have is along the same lines, visualization of PostgreSQL uh, execution plans. Very cool, kind of animates the flow flow rate at different parts in the queries execution plan, so you could see how much time it's spending on the index, how much time it's spending on the the sort or various things within the caching It's really cool. It's kind of fun to just uh look at it <laughs> and see you know i i always i miss uh you know Yahoo pipes where you could kind of watch <laughs> you know make make these giant piping diagrams and watch stuff flow through it right. <laughs> This is, this is even more satisfying. Uh <laughs> and the last one is, is kind of just a funny one. I saw there's this article where uh scientists have reanimated spiders for mechanical purposes, so they they could reuse their legs to lift things in a lab. <laughs> <laughs> that's not funny, that's gruesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's strange. <laughs> Uh so if you want to if you have spider phobia, don't click on this link. But uh I'm it was sure, it, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Will Smith was in that movie, right? I just got a kick out of it.
1: Adam, what are your picks? My pick's unusual. So I got a Peloton tread, the Peloton treadmill. So
3: Oh wow, like a Peloton but without all the awful cycling.
1: <laughs> yeah, you run instead. So I had a treadmill that I didn't use very much. That I got rid of. And I used to like walk on it sometimes. But now I have the Peloton Tread. The classes are amazing and have got me like actually exercising. So there's like, I don't know what type of music you're in, but I'll do like a Pearl Jam class and it's all like Pearl Jam songs and somebody getting you to run and also telling you facts about the history of Pearl Jam. And there's some 90s rock ones and System of a Down one I liked. I think you can see just by what I've named, like the genre of music that I listen to, but uh, it's, been, uh, it's been great. So hard, like turns out running is hard and it's not like jogging. They're like, they, they'll yell at you, tell you to keep going faster. So yeah, Peloton Tread is, has been awesome. I'm I'm loving it. That's my pick.
0: You know, I was always worried with the treadmill and Peloton that I would lose track of reality. I don't know if you've ever used like a VR headset, but like <laughs> you, you take the goggles off and you like misstep or like reach for things and can't quite grab them. Right. I, I worry that that would happen while I'm on the treadmill. <laughs> You know, I would look over, you know, to the side and see something that's fixed and, you know, not be able to balance myself. I, I just see myself getting injured on it.
1: Yeah. It hasn't happened to me yet, but I've, I've worried about it too. And they're like, right. faster, go faster, go faster. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to get thrown through the wall. Like, if I turn this
0: up any higher. <laughs> well, Adam, if, if anybody wants to find you on the interwebs, you know, where can they reach you?
1: Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Adam Gordon Bell. Also on Peloton, uh, although I don't really know what that means. If you, if you track me down on there, I guess you could see what my runs. But yeah, check out my podcast that's the co-recursive.com. Yeah, I think that's enough plugs. Awesome. Yeah, thank
0: you so much for coming on, Adam. I'm definitely a corecursive listener. I love, love hearing the history of, of computer stuff. So keep it up, please. And until next time, folks,
2: Valentino out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN.